Jesus said, I give you a new commandment, that you love one another. Just as Christ has loved us, let us love one another. You may be seated. Let us pray. O God, your love is embodied in Jesus Christ, who washed disciples' feet on the night of his betrayal. Wash us from the stain of sin, so that in hours of danger we may not fail, but follow your Son through every trial, and praise him always as Lord and Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Proof of God's amazing love is this, 
that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ prays for us. Christ reigns in power for us. With such an assurance, there need never be any fear of confession. Only honesty before our God who has made us, who knows us, and who loves us. So let us pray together first in silence. First together, excuse me, and then in silence as we make more candid our confessions. Let us pray. Eternal God, whose covenant with us is never broken, we confess that we fail to fulfill your will. Though you have bound yourself to us, we will not bind ourselves to you. In Jesus Christ, you serve us freely, but we refuse your love and withhold ourselves from others. We do not love you fully or love one another as you command. In your mercy, forgive and cleanse us. Lead us once again to your table and unite us to Christ, who is the bread of life and the vine from which we grow in grace. mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. I declare to you in the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. Our first reading of scripture this evening comes to us from the book of Exodus. We read there in the 12th chapter, the first four verses, and then picking up again at the 11th verse and continuing through the 14th. Listen for the word of God to us this night. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall mark for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Tell the whole congregation of Israel that on the tenth of this month they are to take a lamb for each family, a lamb for each household. If a household is too small for a whole lamb, it shall join its closest neighbor in obtaining one. The lamb shall be divided in proportion to the number of people who eat it. This is how you shall eat it, your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it hurriedly. It is the Passover of the Lord. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike down every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both human beings and animals. On all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. When I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague shall destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be a day of remembrance to you. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord. Throughout your generations, you shall observe it as a perpetual ordinance. And now from the first letter to the Corinthians, the 11th chapter, verses 23 through 26. For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body that is for you. 
Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now finally, from the twelfth chapter of John's Gospel, the first eight verses, continue to listen for God's word to us. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. There they gave a dinner for him. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at table with him. Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He kept the common purse and used to steal what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Almighty, eternal God, grant now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts may be acceptable, even pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Smells have the capacity to transport us deep into our memory. Smells can prompt us to think of something that might not otherwise have occurred to us. Take, for instance, church office smell. I'm not entirely certain what comprises church office smell, but I know it when I smell it. I think it is a combination of age, old books, doctrines, and creeds. If you don't know what church office smell smells like, just take a whiff of my emergency navy blazer that I keep in the closet of my office. That closet concentrates scents somehow. Don't ask me how. All I know is that when I take that jacket out, Church smell fairly cascades off of the fabric, and I could be at any church I have ever been associated with. It is something akin to, but not quite like mothballs. Funeral home smell is much like church smell, but without the pleasant associations. 
with all due respect to the mortuary industry, for some reason, every funeral home I have ever been to shares the same smell. Cut flowers, mortuary makeup, and furniture polish. And I can't exactly describe the smell to you, except that I have come to associate it with death and with grief. Nard, in the first century, would have carried such mixed feelings. Applied to the face, it was a statement of honor and celebration, portending happiness and joy. But applied to the feet, well, that was associated with death and covering the smell of decay, sadness, and lament. As he awaits his passion, Jesus is anointed with nard on his feet. John's Gospel tells us the smell filled the house. This story appears in all four versions of the Gospels. There are some variations, as there always are, but what they share in common is a disdain for the grand gesture of the woman known to us as Mary. In each instance, someone complains about the excess. In some versions, it is the disciples collectively. In John, it is Judas who complains for reasons associated with his desire to pilfer from the till, the gospel tells us. Now, I have often told you that what we do matters. Not regarding our salvation. God handles that. But regarding our vocation, regarding that calling to Christian life that God gives us in the forgiveness of our sins, in the living of that, what we do matters. If we believe otherwise, we risk falling into relying on cheap grace, which of course is an ineffectual grace that suggests that we believe that because God has done absolutely everything necessary for our, our salvation, that what we subsequently do in our life doesn't matter. Cheap grace is juxtaposed with costly grace, where our Christian faith demands some response from us. This is a story of costly grace. John's Gospel is the Gospel of symbol. Actions matter, particularly symbolic actions. Language matters greatly in John's Gospel narrative, too, whereas the Synoptic Gospels can sometimes seem to concentrate more on the story itself. In John, we have highly stylized language of light and darkness, love and life abundant. The very narrative structure of the gospel itself is designed to make a point. In John's gospel, stories aren't told accidentally. This story is not told accidentally. It is placed right here in this narrative as a reminder to the reader that this isn't just any old story. In this story, God, in Jesus Christ, will suffer and die. This story is a foreshadowing of what is to come. And the disciples... In each case, and Judas specifically in John's Gospel, decline to make note 
of what is being foreshadowed. In each gospel, they offer some reason to chastise this woman and her grand gesture. And in each case, Jesus cautions them against their smugness and their self-assuredness. In each case, Jesus tells them to stop and take in the scent of the nard. In each instance, Jesus stops the criticism dead in its tracks and cautions the disciples, and in John, cautions Judas to remember what is happening and what is going to happen. The motives are different in each telling of the story. Sometimes it is the disciples are concerned legitimately for the plight of the poor. In John, that's the cover story because Judas is described as an embezzler when he objects. And in each case, Jesus objects to their objections. The Bible tells us that the smell filled the house. A smell like that would have marked an occasion, and it was meant to. Nard, you see, wasn't cheap. It wasn't like running down to Neiman Marcus or Hermes for the latest scent, a couple hundred an ounce perhaps, a few grand for a pound of it. No, nard was expensive. It was very expensive. Nard was 300 denarii. And just for reference, two denarii was a day's wages. This is six months' salary pooled in the floor for all apparent purposes wasted. This was a grand gesture. Why is it so grand? I'm not sure. The Bible doesn't say. I have a suspicion, though, and it is related to her hair. In the ancient Near East in the first century, women did not wear their hair down. Well, actually, let me correct that. Most women didn't wear their hair down. Some did. Now, you may have heard somewhere along the line that in Paul's letters, he admonishes women to keep their heads covered and, by extension, their hair up. He was writing for a very specific reason when he wrote this, and it was to remind the young Christians that uh, they were expected to be an example to everyone around them, and presumably a woman in this instance wouldn't have wanted to be that kind of an example with her hair down because there was only one kind of woman who went around with her hair down. And by extension, Paul adds, perhaps judgmentally to our minds, that a Christian wouldn't want to look like that. So cover your head. Well, this woman rushes in with her hair down and cracks open a tub of nard and the whole house is filled with the perfume and the disciples are scandalized. Why wasn't this money given away? This could have been sold. One can almost see the puffery. You know, the church is sometimes good at puffery. We have a legacy of it to preserve. Puffery is where we think ourselves better and appoint ourselves the arbiters of morality. And Jesus rejects every bit of it. Jesus says to the disciples in this moment that they have missed the point. Let her alone. She has anointed me for my burial. Costly grace is scandalous. A lot of the time, Protestant Christianity doesn't dwell on the cross. When we do, we tend to make a big deal that our crosses are empty 
that they are not crucifixes. This happens for any number of reasons, but first and foremost, I think when Christians avoid speaking of the cross, I suspect we do so because we think that it involves death. And this week, of course, we know that it does. Years ago, I had a postgraduate fellowship, and I was living in Indianapolis, working at the Second Presbyterian Church there. And I worked with a wonderfully gifted and very acerbic minister of music. He had a wicked sense of humor, and he began to describe to us one day a volume of music that one of his colleagues had assembled through the years. It was all of the blood hymns that he could find from any tradition. These are the hymns that have congregations singing many times unknowingly or unreflectively about the blood of Christ. Now, some of them are positively dreadful. March tunes with words like, are you washed, washed, washed in the blood, blood, blood? You can practically see the stein coming up to your face. And others that perhaps strike us more contemplatively, ones perhaps that are very close to our hearts, such as when I survey the wondrous cross, this collection of blood hymns that this musician had rather flippantly put together was entitled the hemohymnal. It had a red cover. Well, a number of us, a number of us were laughing one day about the worst examples in the hemohymnal, the ones that ask about being covered in the blood of Jesus, you know, gory stuff, much like a crime scene description. And my colleague, Tom Walker, pulled us up all quickly when he paused and waited a moment and said, well, there was blood involved. That's the point. This may be overly psychoanalyzing the disciples, but there is plenty in the gospel to suggest that they, too, didn't want to consider the blood. And that grand gesture of nard spilling out over the living room floor, wafting out through the house, forced the issue. And, of course, those disciples objected. But let's not be too quick to judge them. How many of us really want to ponder the blood? The disciples were only the first in a long line of Christians wanting to have Christ without a cross. The late Peter Gomes writes, the Methodist preacher, Halford E. Lucock, writing in 1957, during America's season of cherry religious expansion, as represented by such figures as Norman Vincent Peale and Dale Carnegie, observed rather tartly that Christianity did not come to the world with a fixed, silly grin on its face and a vapid cheerio on its lips. At the center was a cross. And Lukacs concludes that heritage must be saved from being perverted by the bright side boys, whether in the pulpit or out of it. And it seems that in every age, Christians have neglected the power of the cross because it is unpleasant. If you want to clear a room, talk about the mechanics of crucifixion. But we proclaim Christ and him crucified. And that is the very essence of costly grace. That is the sort of grace that cannot be reduced to declaring it's done, I'm saved, let me go about my life. God loves to forgive, I love to sin, as Rasputin said. Well, on the other hand, reducing the gospel to nothing more than the power of positive thinking. Christ at the anointing declares that she has anointed him 
for his burial. You know, in every version of the gospel, Jesus predicts his crucifixion and his death. In John, it takes on an even more symbolic meaning because unlike the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where Jesus will attend the Passover meal with his disciples, in John, Jesus is the atoning sacrifice. Remember what I said earlier, symbolism is huge in John. And I don't mean with this to sidetrack us into the various theories of atonement by reminding us of, us of this. There is plenty to say about atonement, and we will not say it today. But know this, in John's Gospel, Jesus is the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. That is the definition of costly grace, and that is the sort of grace that is deserving of a grand gesture. And when this woman, this potentially scandalous woman, cracks open that nard, the smell permeated the house, and of course they objected, because not to object would have required them to take in the scent of the nard. You know, we're often reminded in a colloquialism to stop and smell the roses, which of course means nothing more than to savor the good things of life. And of course that is good advice. We do often rush through life close to the matting crowd, rarely pausing to enjoy what we are surrounded with on a daily basis. It is indeed very good to slow down. A preacher friend of mine once waxed positively poetical about the joy of eating a single french fry versus cramming the whole lot in his mouth at one time. It is good to slow down and enjoy life and surely God means us to. But to take in the scent of nard, that is different. To linger over the scent of the perfume is to embrace the symbolism of the sacrificial lamb. To remember that Christ's coming, his ministry, his death, his resurrection was for you, was for us, was for the whole world. And as I said, that is costly grace. You know, costly grace is scandalous grace because it actually has something to forgive. And I worry sometimes that we hear the term so often that the scandal of it is lost on us. I remember a story that puts a fine point on what it is to respond to costly grace. Brett Craddock writes, I'll never forget the day Barbara Jenkins walked in the room. It was a reception of some sort, you know. I don't remember the occasion, but there was a, a punch bowl, a bowl of salted nuts, some mints, and some of those little triangle sandwiches. Uh, there was pimento cheese and tuna fish and ham, all very nice, but you had to eat a lot of them to make anything out of it. Standing around, having a lot of conversation, but none of it really important. Could use some more rain. Yeah, we need some more rain. It's been pretty hot, too. Cooling off, getting close to fall now. Did you watch the game the other day? And then Barbara Jenkins comes in. There was something about the room that changed when Barbara Jenkins came in. Who, you may be asking, is Barbara Jenkins? Craddock recounts that Barbara Jenkins spends her time writing letters, making calls, going and seeing folk to make a difference in the way that the law treats juvenile offenders. Night and day, seven days a week, she worries the authorities to death. You enjoy doing that? Well, not really. You get paid? Are you on salary? No, no. You have children in the trouble in trouble with the law, and you want no, no, no. Then why in the world? It's no fun. You're not making any money. None of your friends are doing it. And she says, "I have to. I have to." Maybe she took in the scent of nard. There's something about recognizing the grand gesture. There's something about surveying the wondrous cross. I really can't distill it down to one thing. I'm not sure I can say exactly what it is. 
actually, no, that's not true. I can, and so can you. It's costly grace, and we know it when we see it. Costly grace is hard to encounter, because if we take it seriously, it should transform us individually and corporately. What does that mean for us? Take in the scent of the nard. Linger over it. You'll know. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Beloved in Christ, what do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.
Let us unite our hearts and our minds once more as we go to God in prayer. Let us pray. Liberating and redeeming God, we give thanks that you hear the cries of your people. Therefore, in our time of trial, we call upon your name, saying, Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. As you delivered our ancestors from slavery and led them to a land of promise and plenty, liberate all who are captive or oppressed and bring them to a place of abundant life. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. As you save your people from death on the night of the Passover, redeem us from sin and death through Jesus Christ the Lamb. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. As Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, stooped down to wash his disciples' feet, teach us to love and serve our neighbors with Christ-like compassion and humility. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. As Christ the Lord has handed on to us a feast of grace in his body and blood, help us to share with all who hunger the gifts we have received from you. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. God, our liberator and redeemer, we give thanks that you have heard our cry. Continue to lead us from death to life eternal, and let our lives be a sign of your saving love. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.
Dear friends, just as cracking open the vial of perfume foreshadowed that which was to come in the suffering and death of Christ, so too does this table offer us a foretaste of what is to come, of the joyful feast in which we are united with all the faithful of every time and place. This feast is set for us all. We read from the pages of the scripture that it was at table when the disciples recognized their risen Lord as he took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they knew him. So even still we are invited to come to this table and to know our Lord Jesus Christ who calls us all, who calls you, because this is not a Presbyterian table. It does not even belong to the church. It belongs to none but Jesus Christ, who is even now the unseen host, who has set the place for you. The meal is prepared. Let us come and join with our Lord. Let us pray. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is truly right and our greatest joy to give you thanks and praise, O Lord our God, creator and ruler of the universe. You made us in your image and freed us from the bonds of slavery. You claimed us as your people and made covenant to be our God. You fed us manna in the wilderness and brought us to a land overflowing with milk and honey. When we forgot your covenant, you spoke through prophets calling us to turn again to your ways. Therefore we praise you, joining our voices with the celestial choirs and with all the faithful of every time and place who forever sing to the glory of your name. God of majesty, and blessed is Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. In humility he descends from your heights to kneel in obedience to love's commands. He who is boundless takes on the bondage of our sin. He who is free takes our place in death's prison. He who is risen leads us to eternal life. And so we thank you that on the night of our Lord's arrest, he took bread, and when he had blessed it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. And that in like manner, when they had supped, he took the cup and gave it to his disciples, saying, This cup is the cup of the new covenant, sealed in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, for as often as you eat this bread or drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And so remembering all your mighty and merciful acts, we take this bread and this wine from the gifts you have given us and celebrate with joy the redemption won for us in Jesus Christ. Accept this, our sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, as a living and holy offering of ourselves, that our lives may proclaim the one crucified and risen. 
Gracious God, pour out your Holy Spirit upon us and upon these your gifts of bread and wine, that the bread we break and the cup we bless may be the communion of the body and blood of Christ. By your Spirit, unite us with the living Christ and with all who are baptized in his name, that we may be one in ministry in every place. As this bread is Christ's body for us, send us out to be the body of Christ in the world. Lead us, O God, by the power of your Spirit to live as love commands. Bound to Christ, set us free for joyful obedience and glad service. As Jesus gave his life for ours, help us live our lives for others with humility and persistent courage. Give us strength to serve you faithfully until the promised day of resurrection, when with the redeemed of all the ages we will feast with you at your table in glory. Through Christ, all glory and honor are yours, almighty God, with the Holy Spirit in the Holy Church, now and forever. Amen. And our Savior, as our Savior Christ has taught us, we are bold to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. These are the gifts of God for the people of God.
Let us pray. Holy God, we thank you and we praise you that in love you have reached across the abyss of our sin to bring us once more into your loving embrace. Having fed us at Christ's table, may we now be Christ's body to share your grace, to do your will, to work for the coming of your kingdom. Through Christ our Lord, in whose name we make all of our prayers. Amen. Thank you. 
Thank you. 